today's reading is from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Amen. Thanks, Kate, for sharing that and reading. And shout out to whoever passed that paper in front of you. That was great. I loved it. Um, I'm sure it was probably Travis or someone like that. <laughs> So, um, you know, we all know that Jesus calls Christians to love. It's pretty simple, right? It's simple to understand, harder to live out, especially when people don't treat us as they ought to. This last week, that's, that was definitely the case for me. I, I, I probably apologized to more people than all of you have this week. <laughs> I did not love like Jesus loves me and how he loves. And that's my family and friends. Hard enough to love our family and friends. Sometimes it's very hard to love our family and friends. And if you were tracking along with the scripture reading, you see that Jesus is not just commanding us to love those who are like us or those who already love us or those who are our family or friends. In fact, Jesus seems to lose his mind by calling us to love those who hate us, love those who treat us poorly. So this is a very challenging text. The title of the sermon is The Hardest Commandment. May, may or may not be the hardest commandment, but it, it's pretty close to it. Because Jesus is calling us to do the impossible here. And this is going to be some tough slugging through this passage. But I do want to tell you. At the end of this message, there is really good news here. Jesus does not command us to do something that he will not 
give us help for? And so before we get into the meat of the text, I want to take you back and ground us in what Jesus is doing. You remember Jesus is speaking and giving this sermon. And the last sermon or the last section in his sermon, he was talking about the Beatitudes, what it's like to have the really good life. And really, basically, who are the people who are going to populate his kingdom? What are they going to be like? What are the promises that are for them? And this is extremely important for us to understand, because if you remember last week, it was extremely countercultural to reality. Those who are poor are the blessed. And woe to those who are rich. It's, it's a complete mind shift. It's a flipping of everything that we can naturally assume. And if we don't have that in mind, this next section is going to sound even crazier than the previous section. Because if Jesus isn't who he really is, and if the promises that he has for us isn't sure and guaranteed, then there's no way to live out this, these commands. There's no way that any of us can do what he calls us to do. And so we have to keep what came before as we move forward. Now, furthermore, we can't just understand the literary context of what was right here, but we also want to understand the cultural context. In the first verse, Jesus says to love our enemies. Now, when you think about who Jesus is speaking to, who was the common enemy for the majority of those listening? Well, Rome. Rome was the common enemy. And anyone who associated with Rome, like Levi, or also known as Matthew. And so it was very easy for those who were listening to Jesus speak exactly in their mind. Oh, I can, I can think of an enemy. Now, furthermore, the Jews understood that Leviticus 19.18 says to love your enemies, I mean to love your neighbor. But what they did over time is they isolated neighbor to be those who look like them, act like them, eat the same things, do the same things. And so therefore, they would say, I am loving my neighbor. If, if you mean neighbor, you mean those who are just like me and love me and like me and so forth. And so Jesus is speaking into a context of an oppressed people who have an enemy that's very clear. That it's not just like, oh, I don't like their political positions. It's like, no, these people are pillaging your land. They're oppressing you with taxes. They are defiling everything you love. These are real, tangible enemies he's speaking about and they're having in their minds. And he's also speaking to this cultural context where they so limited what true love is and what God causes people to do. So with all that in mind, we're going to go into our first verse. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, I'm going to stop there because for a lot of us, as we listen to this text, you may not have a clear enemy in your head. It's kind of a weird thing to walk around and be like, yeah, I know who my enemy is and right over there. Or, you know, it's my neighbor or it's, it's, it's so-and-so. And perhaps you do have a clear enemy that you have a picture of with darts in and so forth. But for most people, you would be hard-pressed to say, this person is my enemy. Now, Jesus doesn't just say, oh, well, you can only, only need to love those who are enemies. But everyone else is, you know, don't worry about them. He, he, he kind of defines what different kind of people can take the place of an enemy. So let me challenge you right now. If you have your Bible, if you haven't got it yet, I'll be here. When you get back, grab your Bible. Now, look at this whole section. And what are all the different descriptions? Jesus will say a command, and then he'll say, who do this? Look at all the different things that 
he's talking about, all the different kinds of activities these people are doing towards you. If you were to look at it, you'll get a list like this. Look at all the phrases. Your enemies who hate you, who curse you, who abuse you, who strike you on the cheek, who take away your cloak, who beg from you, who take away your goods. You see? If you look at your text, these are all the different descriptions that Jesus is calling us to engage, these, these people that he wants us to love. So Jesus is not talking about just enemies that are so clear like, a, like a, another nation that's trying to take over your country. Nor is he just talking about easy people in your life. He is talking about hard people. So you may not have a clear enemy, but you certainly have people in your life, past and present, who have done these things that I just listed that Jesus talks about, right? And Jesus doesn't merely just highlight these enemies. He calls us to do certain things to them. Now, I want you to, again, grab your Bible and look at this section. How many verbs does Jesus command us to do? And what does he call us to do? You want to quickly count. You should find about eight, depending on how you count. So listen to this list of all the verbs that Jesus commands us to do towards these people who have wronged us, which is basically what I'm summing up, enemies. Instead of saying enemies, which can easily distance ourselves from the text when we say, oh, I don't have enemies. Those who wrong us, that's who I'm highlighting. Anyone who has wronged us, Jesus is calling us to love them. So what are all the commands he's called us to do? Love, do good, bless, pray, offer, do not withhold, give, do not demand back. These are weighty things. Now, let's sprint through and unpack these commands and get to some good news because it's going to be pretty rough for a little bit. But track with me. I promise you will be rewarded as you plug in. Number one, Jesus says to love. But number two, we talked about that briefly. Let's unpack what love looks like. Let's look at the first thing in verse 27. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Jesus does not let love be merely a talking point, merely words, or merely emotion. Oh, I love you. I love you. He puts flesh on love. Don't just say you love those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. And what's this person that he's calling us to do good to? It's a person who hates you. This is strong language. And if you look at the Greek, it literally means hate. You can't get around it. We can't just domesticate this passage to make it like there's somebody, like they're, they're just people who are, you know, just frustrated us one day. No, these are people who are hostile towards us. Do good to those who hate you. Do you have anyone who hates you? Well, Jesus says to you, Jesus says to do good to you, to them. Help me, Lord. Do good to me by helping me speak intelligibly. Now, in verse 28, we're going to keep going. Jesus further explains what love looks like. Verse 28, he says, bless those who curse you. Now, these words blessing and cursing are kind of confusing. Let me just briefly explain. Blessing is to invoke upon God or a God for the good of another person. I bless you. I, I, I hope that God blesses you. It makes your life great, right? But what is cursing? It's invoking of a God or God's to bring misery and hardship on a person. So Jesus is saying, for those who are calling misery upon you from their God, 
calling, wanting ill to befall upon you from a divine source, instead of retaliating with curses back to them, to your God or gods, you actually ask God to bless them. Bless those who curse you. Now pray. Here's another verb. Pray for those who abuse you. This word abuse, when I study this passage, even though this is a passage I've gone over so many times, the word abuse stuck out to me. And rightfully so, abuse is a, a very important and a very heavy word that has gotten a lot of attention in our culture lately. And in many ways, rightfully so. Something that many have neglected and swept under, under the rug. And I looked at the most popular Greek dictionary of the word abuse, and it, they defined it like this. To treat someone in a despicable manner, threaten, mistreat, and they use the word abuse. That's what this word here means. Despicable manner, threaten, mistreat. These are no small things. This is not someone forgetting to say hi to you in the hallway and you're ticked off that they ignored you or didn't get back to your text in time. This is weighty, wicked, hostile things that this person has done to you. And Jesus calls you to pray for them. Anybody in your life ever abused you? Jesus calls you to pray for them. Now, he's not calling you to pray for them to get sick or pray that they would lose their job. He's calling you to pray for their good. And it's probably a purposeful decision for Jesus to call them, call us to pray for those who abuse us or abused us, because sometimes if the abuser is still at large, still dangerous, it would be very reckless and unhealthy for you to go back and try to befriend this abuser. Jesus doesn't say, do good to your abuser. Now, he didn't say don't do good to your abuser. So perhaps providence would open up doors for you to safely engage this person with the right people in there to help you. But Jesus is calling you to at least pray for the abuse. And if you've ever been abused before and know the tragedy and the trauma and the pain, to pray for them, pray good for them, is a miracle in itself. Verse 29. Offer to the one who strikes you on the cheek. Offer the other also. Some people have misunderstood this verse to mean that if we suffer physical abuse, kind of like what I was just talking about, from a spouse or from a bully in school, that Jesus, Jesus is just saying, take it. Take it for me. Now, there are times in church history and, and times where there is such a thing as taking it. But it's not what you may think. Let me explain. See, Especially when you look at Gospel of Matthew, he talks about a certain sheep being struck. And what that insinuates is that this is not a strike to try to kill, like a mortal blow, but a slap, like a backhanded slap in order to shame. Now, this is very important because the Jewish culture was an honor-shame culture, which means that a shaming slap like rejecting you out of the synagogue because you don't fit in, this kind of shaming slap or for other reasons could have greater negative effects upon you than just merely trying to hurt you physically. It was a devastating thing to shame someone, especially publicly. And this was probably 
a public reality. And so when Jesus tells us to turn our cheek, he's not saying take abuse in the private home. What he is saying is that someone is shaming you publicly, you look them in the eye, and with God propelling you with love, you turn your cheek and you openly shame them for their mistreatment of you. It's a defiant, active, rather than a passive, wimpy move. It's showing them that you love them and what they're doing is wrong and you're going to keep taking it. And in so doing, this is what Romans 12 talks about. You're, you're, you are putting, heaping holes, uh, coals upon their head. You are doing good to them rather than retaliating and then therefore exposing their brokenness and their wickedness publicly. And I, I'm not going to get into the story right now, but I have had this in my senior year in high school. I turned my cheek when someone publicly slapped me in front of a room full of people. And I turned my cheek by God's grace. And it publicly shamed this person. And it convicted this person. This person ended up repenting to me rather than me retaliating. There's a powerful, subversive, passive, but yet active nature of turning the cheek that Jesus is calling us to. We have a history of pacifist, nonviolent movements that show that God can use this, but he doesn't always use it. And I'm going to talk about that later. This whole section, I just want to preview, is not about results. Don't do, do this so that they eventually will love you back. Turn your cheeks so that they can eventually be loved. Now, Jesus calls us to do this whether or not they respond favorably immediately or in the near future. Now, Jesus says in the next section, which is very similar to the turning of the cheek, is from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, I know all of us are up in um, up with our latest tunic trends, but let me explain to those who are not familiar with the tunic is and, and a cloak is, because that will help. Now, a cloak is more like the outward garment that would keep you warm. It's very needed. A tunic is more like the undershirt that I have. We don't have exact one-for-one -one correlations in our culture, but for like Minnesota, imagine someone coming to you and taking away your jacket, maybe robbing you or taking it because of some sort of court thing. Clothing was expensive. It wasn't like everyone had tons of it. And they take it from you and you know that they're unjustly doing it. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. if you need that, here, take my undershirt too. You, you must need this. See, it's a further... Just like slap, turning your cheek, it is shaming them and exposing their greed, exposing their wickedness by defiantly loving them, by not retaliating, but actually blessing them. If you harm someone and take something from them, what does it do inside of you? Is it, it when they don't retaliate, which you're waiting for, because it, it, it justifies you, it feels good to then go back and forth. But instead of them retaliating, them blessing you. That does something, that disarms the person, and Jesus is calling us to do something similar. Now, this doesn't have complete relevance to us in every case because we don't really have people taking our jackets, but the principle is here of when people are taking from you unjustly, you actually give them more and bless them. Let's look at the next verb, command. Jesus says, give. Luke 6, verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, this word beg is tricky. This word 
in the Greek can just be translated ask. And the reason why I want to avoid the word beg is because beg just has so many cultural connotations. Because when I think the word beg, I immediately think of a, a beggar. But I do not think this context, nor this use of the word um, ask, is, is implying someone who just comes up to you randomly in the street that you've never met, who's just begging for 50 cents or whatever they ask. And as I say that, I think sometimes there's a collective exhale that we can have. Oh, yeah, great. Thanks, Pastor. I don't have to give to them anymore. See, what Jesus is doing here is not taking you off the hook from being kind to a beggar. He's actually calling you to do far more than just give a couple of bucks or cents so you can get them off, leave you alone, and feel good about yourself. But he's actually calling you to love them and to do good to them. And if you have the discernment, whether prophetically by the Spirit or through just natural means of of being wise because you've been around it, maybe you can discern that that person is not doing, not going to use that money for good purposes. Maybe you can tell that they're going to use it for harm. And so it could be, in fact, a very loving thing to not give them money in that sense. However, Jesus is still calling you to, to love them, which means that you may have to call to befriend them which will probably long-term cost you more money than that 50 cents they ask. It may mean many meals. It may mean many late nights. It may mean a lot of things, but Jesus is not calling us to withhold, but to give. But I am just trying to push against because we have such a culture of, of panhandling, especially in the Twin Cities. And so this is, I think, something what people really struggle. Do, do I literally have to give to every single person who asks me? They, they come up to me, hey, give me your car. Uh, I guess the text says, I don't think Jesus is calling us to do that. I want to read a quote to you from Philip Ryken. He's really helpful here. Listen carefully. Some Christians are so concerned about somebody taking advantage of them that they never give anything to anyone. But Jesus' calls us to err on the side of generosity. Of course, there are limits to what we can give, and there are times when it's not loving to give because giving will foster an unhealthy dependency. But love is what must decide. Not love for ourselves and our possessions, but love for others and what they truly need. Jesus calls us to love. And this whole passage here is not about making sure you don't get taken advantage of. It's, it, it goes against all of our instincts to self-preserve, in fact. But I am calling you for wisdom. And I know this is a little more complicated and there's more here. And feel free to dialogue with us off. Now, here's the next command. Do not demand back. It's a similar kind of situation. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Another situation is someone probably taking advantage of someone, someone in a position of power or privilege taking, but not demanding it back. What an anti-American kind of mindset, not demanding back what you rightfully deserve. This text is saying, don't demand back what you don't own. No, he's assuming that you actually own it and you should actually have it. And yet, instead of saying, well, that's mine, that's my God-given rights that my forefathers fought for, he's saying, no, no, don't demand it back. Now, this whole section that I just printed through, these commands, Jesus does not conclusively give us a list to love every single person in every single situation, in every way someone can wrong us. But this next verse, verse 31, if you want to memorize a few verses in the Bible, this is one to make sure you memorize, is a key to love in all kinds of situations. Now, many of you guys know this is the golden rule. Look at verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or do unto others as you would have them do to you. Now, 
This is a very simple to understand command that many people, non-Christians also have adopted for their own life. But how, but the challenge is, is a lot of people have twisted it to be more of a self-help thing. It's kind of a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Live this kind of life, pay it forward, it'll come back. It's kind of like a karma kind of mindset. Stay positive, it'll come back to you. Do good to others and they will treat you well. But rather, this verse is a how, not a why. Let me explain that. It's a how to love people. How do you love people? The way you would want to be loved. Not a why you love people so that they can love you back the way you want to be loved. It's a key to help us have clarity in loving in harder situations that Jesus did not just list in the section. Not a way to um, kind of self-centerize this message so you can live this good life of being forgiving towards others and your life is going to have no limits if you're constantly positive and passing blessings forward so it can come back to you. Well, that's, Jesus has no concept of that in this section where you're loving in order to receive. Now, as radical of sayings Jesus may have here, I think in his original audience and maybe ours too, we can say, you know what, Jesus, this is heavy stuff that definitely Bob needs to listen to or Sharon needs to hear. But I, I'm a loving person, Sam. I, I, I'm a, ask anyone who knows me and loves me. I'm a loving person. Now, Jesus is going to do in this next section, section is totally sweep the rug from under our feet and expose all of us, all of us, especially yours truly. Jesus wants to show us what his love is like. Now look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now this is an incredibly convicting passage if you actually sit on these passages. And I'm going to try to unpack him. Let's start off by unpacking this word sinner. This word sinner is a common word that we use but can be forgotten. When Jesus says sinner, he's not talking about lowercase sinner, S sinner, like anybody who has ever sinned. He's talking about capital S. This defines who they are. They are in rebellion towards God. They don't know him. They're not part of his kingdom. And if you look at the context of Luke, that's what a sinner is, either from the eyes of God because they've totally rejected him or the eyes of the Pharisees and, and the wider Jewish um, society. They don't know God. They're the people who um, have rejected his ways. And so that's what Jesus is speaking about when he says sinner. And so when you see the word sinner, if you want to write in your notes or write in your Bible, you can just say equals those who don't really know God. Now, the reason why I say that is it's going to help us understand what Jesus's point here. This is Jesus's point. Follow me. Who here love those, loves those who loves them? Well, even sinners who don't know God do that. Who here does good to those who do good to you? Well, even sinners who don't know God do that. Who here lends to those that they know that are going to get back the same amount? Even sinners who don't know God do that. See, you'll be hard-pressed to see many examples in the world where people demonstrate costly love towards those who have wronged them and can't repay them. And one of the dangers you and I can make is to 
slowly and subtly surround ourselves with people who love us well and who like us, who are, like, who are easy to love and who are like us, and therefore create this false illusion that we are loving people because all the people we know we love. Well, you know what you did is slowly you pushed out all the people who are hard to love. And so therefore you have this illusion that you are loving. And in fact, Jesus would call us all out and say, no, you're not loving the way I'm loving. You can try to test your love by flipping Jesus's words here. Who here loves those who don't love you? Who here does good to those who harm you? Who here lends to those when you have no idea they can ever pay you back? Now, I want all of us to do an exercise. I really ask you to do this with me. Who in the world here has caused the most hurt and pain in your life? Think about the person. Who in the world has hurt you most? Has set you back most? Slandered you? Abused you? Harmed you? You think to yourself, man, if they didn't exist, I'd be so much better off. They put me in therapy. They messed me up. Mistreated me. This person may be someone you would call an enemy or the closest thing to an enemy. Can you think of them? Or them, maybe? There's a group. Now, with them in mind, do you love them? Do you do good to them? Do you pray for them? Do you bless them? Do you offer them more than they take or taken from you? Do you treat them the way you want to be treated? If you're honest and you're like me, you probably struggle with doing all of the above that Jesus calls us to do. I mean that if you're like me. I struggle with this. Our natural response is not to love, but to retaliate. You did this to me, I do this back to you, or even more. Let's raise the stakes, teach you to never cross someone like me again. Or, Scott Hubbard helped me see this during the sermon prep, is maybe you can subtly just distance yourself from that person. You may not do exactly what they did to you, but you're at least going to distance yourself in a cold manner and passively shut them down. If you're like me and you struggle with living this ethic out, this life of love, I have really good news for you. Let's go to our final section. Jesus is going to sum up these commands, and then there's going to be good news. We're going to start with some of the hard stuff, and then we're going to get to the good stuff at the end of this passage. Verse 35, Jesus says this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, let's just stop there. Love, do good, and lend. And what does he say? Expecting nothing in return. I used to always read expecting nothing in return in connection to lend, because it makes sense, right? You lend and you expect nothing in return. However, I think that this context in this whole section would say, no, 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 no. Love your enemies, expecting nothing in return. Do good, expecting nothing in return. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Jesus raises the stakes. 
See, these passage, this passage shows us these commands are not about immediate results. Like, do these things, and eventually they'll, you'll win them over with your love. You may not. You may. There's tons of, of examples in church history in our own lives where that does happen, that God's overwhelming, unconditional love flowing through us transforms a person, and they respond back in love and time. But there's also cases where you just love, 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 and you expect nothing in return. And in fact, you get nothing in return. And the only way this works is what Jesus says next. What does he say? He says, your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. This is a future reality. That's why I talked about the beatitude being kept in mind, because beatitude Beatitudes points towards the future hope in heaven and God's grace towards us. If our hope in heaven is not guaranteed and not promised, then we cannot do this. Because we need, we need to be reciprocated with our, with our love. It, we, there's something about our hearts that needs that. And yet, because we know that we'll have that in heaven in a far greater way than what that person can return to you, we can do that now liberally freely to those we know that will never do that back to us. The promise is great. And and even if when we suffer, even if they abuse us or mistreat us, uh, the words of Paul come to mind in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, it's not even worth considering. If you just do basic math, what we have coming for us is nothing compared to what we have going on. Even the worst situations, the most unjust, cruel, painful, heart-aching situations are nothing compared to the glory that has for us. And Jesus is making that call. Now, he says something here that is a little tricky. He says this, and you will be sons, I'm reading verse 35, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be sons of the Most High. What does he mean by that? Do these things, and then God will then be like, oh, I love you now because you're awesome. I'm going to adopt you. No, no, no. I think if you look at this context and the surrounding context of the whole scriptures and, and wider theology, Jesus is saying this will be a result of those who are truly children of God. In other words, children imitate their daddy. This is what the daddy does. This is what our daddy does. And so children do what he does. John Calvin says this in his commentary, says this, this will be a mark of our adoption if we are kind to the unthankful and evil. This is what our father is like. And that's the good news of this whole section. Now, Jesus says that we will be, what does he say? We will be sons of the most high. And so, Children imitate their daddies. And over and over, every scholar I read, everybody, author I read on this passage, they just kept over and over harping on this reality that loving your enemies, loving those who wrong you, characterize those who know Jesus. Loving those who wrong you, characterize those are truly God's children. It's not like some elite Christians do this, but most Christians don't. No, no. Over and over again. This is what Christians do. They love those who wrong them. It's core to our very faith. Now, when I say the word characterized, what do I mean? I mean that 
it's an attribute that most of the time someone engages in, shows, demonstrates. So much so that they're known for this attribute. Not that they never do the opposite, not that they never not love, but they love so often those who wrong them that they're characterized and known for loving. So with that said, let me ask you this. Does loving those who wrong you characterize your life? If people were to think, what is Sam like? Would one of the earlier attributes or descriptions they would say of Sam is, you know, he loves and he even loves those who wrong him. This is unmistakable. This is Christianity 101. This is not for the elite. This is for anyone who have received mercy. Now, if you have not been characterized by loving those who wrong you, here's the good news for me and for you. If you have not been characterized by loving those who wrong you, guess what? There is someone who is. There is someone who in his entire life, all he did is love those who wrong him. And he continues to love those who wrong him. Look at verse 35. This is what this whole text is pointing to. This is the good news. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is who God is. And look at verse 36 as we end this passage. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. This whole text does not climax on, all right, now do these commands. No, no, no. The whole text climaxes in this reality that do this because this is all that I do. This is what your daddy does. This is what I am. This is what I'm calling you to do with me. Why does he use the word merciful instead of love those? Be loving, even as your father is loving. Well, because mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And so this whole section is talking about people who have wronged us. And so rather than reciprocating their wrong with more wrong, give them love, which is giving them mercy. That's why he says mercy rather than just love them. Because they don't deserve love, and yet you're giving them love. And you know what? I don't deserve love, and yet God gives me love. And that's the, the beauty of this whole section. Jesus is not calling us to something that he does not do himself. Let me just remind you quickly through the Gospel of Luke what Jesus does. Luke 22, Jesus does good to those who hate him. And one of the servants of the high priest struck um, one of of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus is being arrested by these Wicked men. And he heals one of their ears. This is what Jesus does. Jesus does not retaliate. Remember, Jesus is in this courtroom scene in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Jesus turns his cheek. We don't see him explicitly turn his cheek, but we know that from other passages, he could just snap his fingers and at a word, he could send in legions of angels and basically just decimate every single person who's wronging him there. And yet he takes it. They are mocking him and he takes it. Has anyone ever been abused or mistreated like Jesus? 24 hours or more of torture, abuse, and crucifixion. And Jesus prays and blesses. Look at, look at what he says in chapter 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. And it's interesting, they cast lots to divide his garments, his outward garment. They took it from him. We can follow Jesus' example because he gave it to us, but even more, we can follow his example because he's done that to us. We're not merely looking at Jesus' life and saying, well, look how great he is. Let's do the same. We are recipients of mercy, and that's why we can give mercy. We are the ones who did wrong to him. Let me take you to one final passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. I want to read it slowly as we come to a close. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, this is the core of the gospel, is that God reconciled us while we were enemies, while we wronged him, while we spit in his face, while we rejected his counsel and his lordship. And yet God showed mercy to us. And therefore, that's why this is so core to the Christian life, is that if you're a Christian, you believe you've been given unbelievable, undeserving mercy. And so therefore, how can we not show mercy to those who wronged us? even though they don't deserve mercy. Who is like our God? Can you imagine even making up a religion with a God that does such a thing? You would write a God that would always be on your side and just smite all your enemies and not love your enemies. But actually you would rejoice in your God siding with you and hating enemies with you. If you fail to love like this, like I have, There's good news. Jesus is the one who has always loved like this. And his loving life can be yours if you put your hope and trust in him. In fact, the insanity of the gospel is not only will he forgive us of our sins and our trespasses and our loveless life, but he will accredit to us, count us as if we live the loving life that Jesus always lived. That is preposterous. And yet that's the good news. He was tortured and crucified as if he lived the kind of loveless life we lived. Mm -hmm. And in his resurrection, we see that his love conquers all. His love wins at the end of the day and will abolish all hatred, all enmity between people, and there will be unity and love reigning on this earth. And if you want this God of love, you can have him. That's the good news is that this love is not for the elite or those who prove themselves. It's for anyone who wants him. And Christian, if you forgot that, you can freshly receive his love, that he loved you not because you were loving first, but because he loved you first. You can love him. Receive that love again fresh and let that propel you to love others. Now I have some application here on how to love those who are to love, but I need to wrap up our time. But I just imagine what would it be like if we really believe that God loved us as much as he says he does and he forgave us as much as he has and that he's merciful towards us. We would be the most loving community. And Jesus says in John that they will know that you are my followers by the way you love each other. And so church, all people's church, let us love unconditionally everyone who wrongs us like our father does. And all people's church, let us especially love those who wrong us as our father loves those who wrong us and wrong him. So church, let us unconditionally love like our father loves 
us. Amen.